Like it or not, Yeshua taught Hasidic Judaism before Hasidic Judaism was even a thing. If you hope to make a point, then you better rely upon primary and secondary sources and not YouTube theology. Did not Yeshua say Yeshuot v'yelachim is of the Yehudim? When Hashem says in Deuteronomy to listen to the rulings of the Sanhedrin or the penalty of death, I don't think he was kidding. If you're a sacred namer, a two-house theologian, a chirite, a one-Torah theologian, and you reject the rabbis and the sages, get ready to have your foundation be rocked. Shalom and welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Brutal Planet right here on Yeshiva Radio. My name is Christopher Fredrickson. I am your host of this program. And today I'm going to be talking about something that is often not talked about in the circles of language and Semitic culture. And this is going to be a very eye-opening thing. There's going to be a lot of people who take great issue with the idea that I am presenting here and why it is that I teach Hebrew over at the Hebrew and Aramaic Learning Institute in the manner in which it is that I do. Now, first of all, there is no shortage of individuals who claim to teach Hebrew and or Aramaic. As you can see on the wall over here, I have a couple of my certifications in the Hebrew language that are accredited, accredited certifications, and I also have two more in another room, as a matter of fact. And uh, it's one of my great emphasis of study. One of the things that I started to realize that as I was starting to learn Hebrew, and then now I'm learning my Aramaic. I don't have any Moray certifications in Aramaic, and I don't teach Aramaic, but um, I am a student of Aramaic. One of the things I started to realize is that language has a certain functionality within culture, and I ended up finding this amazing little clip here, which it is I'm going to play for you guys, that is from a TED Talk. Okay, and so we're going to go ahead and roll that clip here so you guys can see where it is that we're going with this. Does the language we speak shape the way we think? These are the Kuktaer people. They live in Pomporao at the very west edge of Cape York. In Kuktaer, they don't use words like left and right. And instead, everything is in cardinal directions, north, south, east, and west. And when I say everything, I really mean everything. You would say something like, oh, there's a, an ant on your southwest leg. Uh, or move your cup to the north-northeast a little bit. In fact, the way that you say hello in Kuktaer is, which way are you going? And the answer should be, north-northeast in the far distance, how about you? People who speak languages like this stay oriented really, really well. They stay oriented better than we used to think humans could. Uh, we used to think that humans were worse than other creatures because some biological excuse, oh, we don't have magnets in our beaks or in our scales. No. If your language and your culture trains you to do it, actually, you can do it. Lots of languages have grammatical gender. So every noun gets assigned a gender, 
often masculine or feminine, and these genders differ across languages. Could this have any consequence for how people think? Actually, it turns out that's the case. So, if you ask German and Spanish speakers to say describe a bridge like the one here, bridge happens to be、uh, grammatically feminine in German, grammatically masculine in Spanish. German speakers are more likely to say bridges are beautiful, elegant, these stereotypically feminine words, whereas Spanish speakers will be more likely to say they're strong or long, these masculine words. Languages also differ in how they describe events. In English, it's fine to say he broke the vase. In、uh, a language like Spanish, you might be more likely to say the vase broke or the vase broke itself. If it's an accident, you wouldn't say that someone did it. In English, quite weirdly, we can even say things like "I broke my arm." Now, in lots of languages, you couldn't use that construction unless you. Are a lunatic, and you went out looking to break your arm, and you succeeded. People who speak different languages will pay attention to different things depending on what their language usually requires them to do, and that has, gives you the opportunity to ask, "Why do I think the way that I do? How could I think differently?" And also, what thoughts do I wish to create? And what the lady said here in this clip is a hundred percent true. One of the things that we have to realize. And there is a term that it is that you guys have heard me use, and I see many people now, since me using this term, are now you know going and using this term as well, the term hashkafa, which means theology through worldview. You know, it's very interesting. I've had、uh, several people that have brought up to me how it is they've gone on travels all around the world. And how it is that they've learned, how it is that different cultures and different regions of the world, how it is that they go about、um, expressing certain certain things that are different than the way that it is that we express them here in the United States. And so the thing about those, we have, one of the things we have to keep in mind is that when we are reading the Bible in Hebrew or in Aramaic or even You know the Greek translations as well. You know that are translated into Greek text.、Um, one of the things that we have to realize is that first of all, there is a culture that is surrounded within each and every single word and each and every single letter, and we really start to see things through Semitic language that is something that we never see have seen before. And we have to take into account the hashkafa, the worldview of the people during the times that had written the Bible, as well as the region of the world, the idiomatic expression, and all of these things. And it's a lot to learn and a lot to take in. And so, whenever it is that I teach the Hebrew language over at the Hebrew and Aramaic Learning Institute. I also teach rabbinics with it, and the thing about it though is that this seems so far out in left field for a lot of people. They're saying, "I just want to learn how to read the Bible." Well, you know, don't you want to be able to interpret what it is that you are that you are reading based upon the worldview and how others would have read it during that time? You know, there's a lot of people out there, especially in today's time, who are very anti-rabbinic. They are very anti-Talmud. They're very anti-Midrashim. They're very 
anti uh, Tosefta, you know, Chazel, and so on and so forth. And I'm not going to make a case for that today, as I've made the case for rabbinics many times on this program. I'm not going to make the case for it today. But what I am going to say is that this is a crucial part of the worldview of the writers who had written these books of the Bible, and also to those with whom it is that it's being read to and taught to and so on and so forth. We have to put ourselves within that culture. You know, it's interesting. We have a word in English that uh, we see 12 times within that of the Hebrew of the Bible, and we also see it in the Greek of the New Testament. Now, I'm an Aramaic primist in terms of the New Testament. I'm not going to talk about that here today, but, you know, we have over 10,000 Greek manuscripts, however, of the New Testament um, in Greek. And so, you know, the thing about those, we can't just go and deny the Greek. We can't do that. And so we have to see value in the Greek, and we see a Greek form of this word being used in the letters of Paul. And the Hebrew word is the word kahara. It's kahara, okay? Now this word kahara um, actually translates to a curse word in English. It actually translates to the curse word that starts with the letter S, okay? And we actually find this word several times within that of the Tanakh, within the Old Testament. We also find it in rabbinic literature. We find it in, uh, you know, se several others. So we see how there is a separation from our worldview, our Hashkafa in the 21st century, and how that word is perceived and how it is perceived in the Semitic times of the Semitic culture you know, and even by the writers of the Bible. And so the thing about those, many times people will dance around that word within the English translations and so on and so forth. But, you know, it's, it's something to think about, though, at, at, at the same time, how far removed we are from that culture. You take, for instance, as well, um, the word Shemaim, for instance. You know, one of the things that really helps you with learning the Semitic language is that you then start to go and see certain things that, you know, take, for instance, the, the, the root of the word Shemaim is from Shaddai. And Shaddai has several different meanings. You know, Shaddai can mean a feminine breast. It can also mean almighty as well. It depends upon the masculine or the feminine. And then you also have the word Maim. And then you notice, wait a minute, it ends in a memsofit. So that means that the word Shemaim is actually plural in many ways and so you know people wonder where why it is that jews talk about various levels of heaven why it is that paul in his letter to the corinthians and one of his letters to the corinthians talks about various levels of heaven he says whether in the body or out of the body i don't know i was taken to the third level of heaven and this is something that we find in the literature of the zohar and so on and so forth but the word maim as well also means waters you know, so, you know, there, there, there's so many different things that are in terms of the worldview of why it is that that particular word was made up of the root of Shaddai and then with that ending with that Amayim, you know, and then we can get into whole things like the fermentation and so on and so forth. And the rabbis of the time, you know, go and they talk about these things. They go and they talk about, you know, the reasons why this is, you know, and so on and so forth. And they are right there in the midst 
of the times of those who were there in the Bible during the times of Ezra, during the times of Yeshua, you know, and so on and so forth. You know, these were people who were immersed in this culture and they knew this, you know, and so we also see that Paul obviously knew this, you know, being being a, a parush, being a being a being a Pharisee. And so the thing about it though is that in many ways people tend to go and they want to learn the sounds. They want to learn the phonetics of the Semitic languages. So how do I say the letter bait if it has a dagesh? How do I say it if it doesn't have a dagesh? What do I how do I say it if it has a dagesh and a sagol or a patach? You know, I mean, how do I go about saying this? Well, in what instances do I use a cholam as opposed to that of a vava, the cholam? You know, these are things that people want to, to learn and know. But the thing about it, though, is that when I go and I teach these things, and I go and I teach in the uh, Semitic language of Hebrew, one of the things that I often end up going to do is, you know, first of all saying, you know what, we have to go and immerse ourselves into culture. We have to immerse ourselves into the hashkafa of the worldview of the individuals who had written these books of the Bible so we can get into to, to their heads. And, you know, the thing about it, though, is that many people who are anti-rabbinic, you know, they lose out on so much, you know. And I'm not saying that they have to, you know, be like myself and take upon themselves rabbinic halakha. You know, I live a, a Hasidic halakha. That's you know that's my life that's what i do i'm not i'm not saying that everybody has to, has to live that but the thing about it though is that i think that there needs to be a mutual respect for the religious text of the times of the people who had written the old testament and the new testament that we have to take those things into consideration and also at the same time we also must look and you know in certain things such as, you know, when we look at all these places that Paul had written letters to, for instance, we got to look as well at secular history as well and say, what was the culture like here? And this will help us to explain why it is that Paul is saying what he says to this group of individuals and not so necessarily to another group. He may say something totally different. And so we are so used to having this uniform and unilateral idea of the way of seeing things and interpreting things in the westernized society. But the fact is that, you know, simply learning the sounds, learning how to use a dictionary and all these things is only going to take you about 20% of the way, in all honesty, because you have to learn the Hashkatha. You have to learn the worldview and the theology of the time. You have to understand why it is that in some places within the Mesoretic text, we have broken letters, we have inverted letters, we have letters that are bigger than others, you know, in various places within the Mesoretic text and also in other codexes. We have to learn why it is that, you know, one of the things that I constantly see are people that are a part of the sacred name movement, that, you know, say, okay, well, you know, this right over here has the four-letter name of God and it has Nakud with it, you know, and they just, they don't know what Nakud is. They just call it vowel markers, but it's so much more than just vowels. It, uh, Nakud actually means punctuation, but even that term, punctuation is different in English than it is in Hebrew, you know, because punctuation, we think commas, we think, uh, you know, um, uh, periods, explanation marks, question marks, all those things. That's what we see punctuation as being. In Hebrew, however, punctuation are a, are a variety of sounds, you know, that usually deal with, deal with vowels or how it is that we go about 
pronouncing certain letters when they have a dagesh within them or if they have you know something on the outside or the inside or so on and so forth all the various um nakud that could be associated with certain letters you know and so the thing about it though is that you know they make the case well we have manuscripts in the aleppo and the leningrad that have you know they call them vowel markers but they're actually called nakud because they serve so much more of a function than vowels but they go and they say 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 this and then they go okay you know there we go we know the four letter name of god based upon you know the vowel markers that are you know over over here and they don't understand the history of the scribal tradition that deal with something called curé and katif there's so many people out there that that have never heard of curé and katif and they just kind of look at me like what the heck is that whenever i bring this up and curé and katif basically means what is written and what is said and so the thing about it though is that when you have these um these documents that have the four letter name of god with uh, various Nakud and all that stuff. The reason for it is that they would take the Nakud for the word Adonai to let a person know that right there they are to pronounce Adonai as opposed to the four-letter name of God. And so the thing about it, though, is that they don't know about this. And this is even something that's within the, the, the textual notes that are on the pages of the Aleppo and the Leningrad Codex and in various other texts that go and have these. I mean, it's right there on the page saying, you know, this is why it is that we rendered it with Nakud is so that you know to pronounce Adonai as opposed to the four-letter name of God, you know. And so the thing about it, though, is that the, these are things that are so foreign. They, they say, okay, I'm going to learn a little Nakud and all that stuff, you know. And if you're starting to learn Nakud, I say Baruch Hashem because there's so many people out there that choose to just make up their own Nakud. <laughs> In all honesty. But if you're learning Nakud, I say Baruch Hashem. And if you want to learn Nakud, you know, with the letters and all and all this rabbinic way of looking at the Hebrew language, make sure to go to the Hebrew and Aramaic Learning Institute at HebrewAndAramaic.com. But, you know, the thing is that they go and they say, okay, well, I'm, I'm going to learn the Nakud. And so this is what I, you know, figure this to be in terms of the rendering of the four-letter name of God. And then they don't know the history of, you know, for instance, you know, the Cholam. The Cholam represents a phantom Vav, you know, so in many ways, you know, they would have to have a yod hey vav vav hey, you know, in all honesty. And you would have to have a text, you know, at some point in history that would have a double Vav in the Tetragrammaton, the four-letter name. But yet, no text has that. And then you have the other issue of the guttural stop. Well, you know, the guttural stop can be signified by that of a of an of an aleph without nakud or an ayin without nakud. And then you have to pick back up on the H sound to come up with the idea that it is they're coming up with. So you would have to have, you know, three extra letters added to the four letter name. So the four letter name of God then becomes a seven letter name of God in the way that it is they go about pronouncing it. So, you know, you see so, see so, so you can see that how it is that not understanding certain things from scribal tradition and what it is that the scribes ended up doing in order to render these these things and why they're rendered the way that it is that they are by using the religious history and also in terms of you know other things of theology understanding why it is that we have to learn secular history so we know about the people in Galatia. We have to know about the people in Corinth. We have to know about the people in all of these places where it is 
that Paul had written letters to and the places where it is that they're going to in the Old Testament. You know, what was going on, you know, in the in Persia during, during, during this time? What do we have to know about Persia? You know, there's different things that it is that we should know. You know, who exactly were the Midianites and the Amalekites, you know, and all of these people? You know, what regions of the world is, is going on there? Is there any writings, you know, from those regions in the world that basically say this is what the, these people are that come from scholarly sources and not just religious sources? You know, these are things that it is that we have to look at if we are going to understand the culture of the Bible better and to understand the Bible in a much more uh, way, you know, because it's so easy for us to just think that if we learn the sounds and we learn how to read it and then we just go and use use a dictionary, then we have Hebrew mastered. Chasvi uh, Shalom, God forbid. In all honesty, you have idiot- idiomatic expression that doesn't, you know, go and translate into English. You take, for instance, I had somebody send me an email the other day saying, well, there's a contradiction in the New Testament because of the fact that it says that Yeshua was sleeping in this passage, and then he says that he has no place to lay his head. And I'm sitting up there going, "Dude, you're trying to you're you're, you're reading this through the through through the lens of not looking at idiomatic expression and what was actually meant, you know, in those passages through Semitic idiomatic expression that was used during that time. And so this is important. And the thing about it, though, is that whether or not that you agree with Torah Bialpe like I do, I'm, you know, as a Hebrew teacher, I'm not going to force that on you, but I will say to you that, however, we have to understand it to some extent in order for a historical reference into how it is that reading the letters and reading the words and all of these things and what it is that they represent, what it is that they mean, and so on and so forth is going to be helpful to you in terms of being able to see the language through the lens of idiomatic expression and to be able to see it through the lens of the people who were there at the time and to whom it is that they were writing these things to give to and so on. And so that's very important. That's very important. You know, and so, ladies and gentlemen, you know, whether or not it is that you decide to go and learn Hebrew or learn Aramaic from us over at the Hebrew and Aramaic Learning Institute, or you learn it somewhere else, one of the things that is going to be gratefully helpful to you is that if you learn it through the lens of the individuals who ended up writing it, and don't be fooled by many of the, what I like to call YouTube theologians out there. You would not believe how many people that tell me, I read the Bible in Paleo-Hebrew. Oh, really now? Which codex are you reading, sir? <laughs> and of course, we all know there's no codex in Paleo-Hebrew. <laughs> there's not a single biblical document in Paleo-Hebrew under the sun. I've offered $1,000 to anybody who can, you know, provide me proof that one actually exists, where all of these supposed Bibles are being translated from, uh, that actually use a four-letter, a, a variation of the four-letter name of God, that's actually a six-letter name of God, that uh, actually ends with the word uh, deceit and trickery. <laughs> I'm sitting there going, that's very fitting for that particular translation and all that stuff of... Uh, Oh, goodness. So, you know, ladies and gentlemen, you know, this is just going to be one of those things that is really going to help you out a great deal. And I encourage you that, you know, whether or not it is you're learning from us at the Hebrew and Aramaic Learning Institute or you're learning it somewhere else, make sure that you are learning it 
through the Hashkafa of the Jewish people at that time. So you can understand what exactly is going on. Okay? So, I want to wish each and every single one of you Shalom Bracha, peace and a blessing. Shalom. So you want to learn Hebrew or Aramaic, or maybe both? Make sure to check out HebrewandAramaic.com. All three of the instructors on the website have accredited Moray licenses to teach the languages that they teach on the website. You can take the lessons on your very own time, and they even have a Roku channel so you can learn from the comfort of your very own couch. With over 200 videos going step-by-step -step through the languages and all the various scripts and over 100 PDFs of exercises and quizzes, this is the most thorough set of lessons that you'll find anywhere on the languages of the Tanakh and the Brit Hadashah. So visit HebrewAndAramaic.com today and sign up for only $15 a month.